0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Rotman podcast, powered by the Entertainment and Media Association here at the Rotman School of Management. Today, we're celebrating International Women's Day with none other than
1: Sarah Kaplan, Professor of Strategic Management at Rotman, Director of the Institute for Gender in the Economy, which is where I spend most of my time these days.
0: Sarah began her career as a management consultant before taking a big career-shifting jump pursuing a PhD and eventually becoming a professor. Sarah is passionate about gender equality and has manifested this into her impactful research at the Institute for Gender and the Economy at Rotman.
2: In this episode, we get her take on some of the most prominent debates about women in the workplace today. We hear about the lessons she's learned and we also hear about some of the trade-offs she's made in her life. So without further ado... We present to you this diverse and inclusive conversation with Sarah Kaplan.
1: Welcome to the show, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here.
2: Thank you for taking time out to do this. So my first question to you is, we're in this new decade, everybody's super excited about what it means to be in 2020, progressive society moving forward. But yet, while we're slowly seeing a rise of women in C-suite roles, women continue to remain underrepresented at every level in the workforce. So what, in your opinion, are the dominant factors that are sustaining such underrepresentation even today?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. How did we get to 2020? And this is still the case. And it's something that I think a lot about. And it's actually what inspired me to start the Institute for Gender and the Economy, because I started working in 1986 and everyone said my generation was the one for whom it was all going to get fixed. And then I woke up 30 years later and I was like, hey, wait a minute. It didn't quite work out the way that everyone had intended. And that's why I've chosen to focus my attention on this. So what I think is going, I mean, obviously, this is such a complicated issue that I'm not going to be able to give you like, here's the one thing, and we can just fix it. Because if there were one thing, we would have fixed it. So that's part of the problem. But I think there's a confluence of different factors. The first is that we still in our society expect women to be the primary caregivers at home. So if that's the case, then it's going to be so much harder for them to pursue high-level careers even if they stay working, if there's still the person who has to pick the kid up from daycare or go home when the kid gets sick at school, assuming in a heterosexual couple is not the male partner, then that's going to hold them back from their careers. And that ties into the fact that we don't invest enough in high-quality child care so that women can work. So we see women, therefore, we call it job segregation, where they're either opting in for part-time work or they're opting for that inside job or the HR job or something like that. And that then keeps them from doing the kind of work, managing a profit and loss statement, the kind of things that will allow them to be promoted. It's this complex of family issues and then inside employers where we still have a lot of bias in terms of our understanding of who what a leader looks like. And so when we're looking at our pool of leaders, we don't promote women because they don't look like our typical stereotype of what a leader looks like. And it's been very hard to break down those systems because it's not just that we're all biased, is that our systems and procedures are biased. It's our criteria that we write in job descriptions, our list of what it takes to be on a board are all things that are going to make it so that basically straight white men get onto boards and everyone else is excluded. I could go on and on and on, but that would be sort of an overview of what I think are some of the confounding factors.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think you've given us a really good context of the things that you're thinking about. And you did also mention the term bias there. And so in some of your recent interviews, you have spoken about unconscious biases and how it's very difficult to navigate some of the inherent biases that we are born with and or raised with in some cases. Now, we also spoke to Dilip recently as well, and he told us the same thing. It's very, very difficult, given the way that humans are either raised or just programmed to function the best as we'd like ourselves to be. Given that, what are some of the blind spots and particularly in terms of diversity and bias training and the perception of equal opportunity? So what are some of the blind spots there Mm -hmm. with regards to that?
1: Well, yeah, it's really interesting. We are natural categorizers. That's just a human brain function. And so we will try to categorize people. And gender is this instantly salient category. It's almost the first thing. It tells us how we should even interact, like how physically close we get, how we greet someone, all these kinds of things. And it's so instant. It's pre-conscious. And we're all socialized that way because our brains are categorizers. If we're socialized to think that gender is an important category, we're gonna do it. So the answer then has been over the last decade or so to give us all unconscious bias training so we can somehow be aware of our biases. That has not been super successful. Yes, it does help some people have greater awareness, but what we see, the research suggests that unconscious bias training may increase awareness, but it doesn't lead to behavior change. And it can also not only not lead to behavior change, but lead to backfiring because, you know, the straight white man is going to say, hey, wait, I'm not sexist, I'm not racist, or whatever the thing is, they get defensive and it can really backfire. So the research is suggesting that unconscious bias training by itself won't be effective. Now, it might be effective if you couple it with changes in incentives, new culture in the organization, priorities in terms of senior leadership, new processes and procedures, but by itself, it's hugely problematic and I think one of the reasons going back to your first question we haven't seen as much progress is because we put all of our energy around unconscious bias training when it's not actually going to be the thing that fixes things and I'll just say it's part of this project to make it all about individuals so okay we don't have to change systems we'll just change individuals, we'll fix our bias, or we'll fix women, because that's the other thing that people do is train women to be like more assertive. And I'm like, that's never going to work in a system that's, you know, you lean in, the system is designed to push you back. And so I think this is part of and not to get too political, but part of the neoliberal project to make everything about individuals as opposed to looking at structural and systemic change. And so I think we are now in 2020, I think coming out of this realization that unconscious bias training and other things aren't working. And so we really need to start looking at more of the systems change.
2: So there's also constant debate surrounding quotas that organizations are trying to fill in the light of diversity and inclusion. So while something the step is necessary to set a baseline standard for female representation, other people may perceive it as a threat to the notion of meritocracy.
1: What are your thoughts? I have so many thoughts on this. So first of all, The notion of meritocracy is in itself kind of a project of the patriarchy in the sense that our definition of meritocracy basically looks like, oh, you're a straight white man. That's what's meritocratic. And we actually don't live in a meritocracy. We think we do we perpetuated the myth that we live in a meritocracy. But in fact, all the research suggests you put two identical CVs in front of someone, but one has a woman's name and one has a man's name on it. The woman is half as likely to get the job offer. And the same for anybody who signals any LGBTQ kind of identity or people of color. And there was a recent study that just came out of Harvard that showed that 43% of the white kids who get into Harvard get in because of legacy or donations or things like that. And only 26% of them would have gotten in if they had to actually meet the standards that everyone else has to meet. So we don't live in a meritocracy now. We live in an affirmative action system for straight white men. So when people talk about quotas, they're like, oh, it's going to hurt meritocracy. It's actually not going to hurt meritocracy at all. The research on quotas basically suggests that when you put quotas in place, you actually increase overall quality. Because what does it do? It gives opportunities to women, people of color, people with disabilities, veterans, some disadvantaged groups who are qualified, it gives them the visibility and the opportunity to get it included. Now, who gets hurt by quotas and affirmative action? Well, mediocre white men who got all the benefits that they shouldn't have gotten if we really, truly cared about meritocracy. So, quotas for me are actually a way of leveling the playing field not giving any special advantage. And so when I hear students and other people complaining about, oh, it's so unfair, there was this special recruiting event just for women, or I've heard men downtown on Bay Street say, well, now you know I'll never be able to get a board seat because it's all about women on boards. I'm like 75% of the seats that were filled last year were filled by straight white men. So 25% did go to women, but 75% is still pretty good number. So I think that this meritocracy is actually this myth that's designed to actually hold women back, hold people of color back. And so I think it's a unhelpful argument and it's one that everyone believes but it's actually incorrect. The research would say it's incorrect.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating insight and I- Really like how you touched on the legacy systems and the legacy programs that they have at prestigious universities, and I think recently we've seen John Hopkins, for example, have just they've just cancelled those types of uh, things, which I think is a step in the right direction. And absolutely. Speaking of steps in the right direction, we've seen now that Goldman Sachs also has announced they'll be no longer doing IPOs for companies that don't have a member of an underrepresented minority on their board. So these startups that typically are described as you just have. Now that we're looking to have a large focus on with women on the board or underrepresented minorities. So how viable is it, do you think, to implement such a massive change in an organization like this? It's obviously come from the top and they're thinking about trying to change their systems. Yeah, you also cover strategic change and implementation. So you could give us good insight into this. And also, how do you see it benefiting Goldman in the long run?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in a way, all Goldman is saying is you literally have to have either one woman or one person of color on your board. People are talking about it like it's some huge, massive transformation. That shouldn't be that hard. And when I read it, I was like, this is pretty much the bare minimum that they could be doing. I'm like, what about 50-50? Why is our target one? (laughs) You know, so for me, I'm not as thrilled about it. But it does send a very important signal because we do see a lot of IPOs coming from startups out of Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley has historically been a bastion of a certain privileged minority. So I think it's good. I think it's easily viable to do. You just set the standard. And one shouldn't be that hard. The thing I actually worry about about one is that one person could just risk being a token. And we know from research that tokenism is hugely problematic. And it's so much better to have three or four or half. You know, when Norway went to their quota of 40% women on boards. What was so great about it is suddenly these boards, it wasn't like they added one woman, they added four women. And then there was no one woman who could be signaled out as the token because there was a group. And so the one thing I worry about this, we have to have one thing, is it may lead to a lot of dangerous tokenism as opposed to saying, actually, we want 50-50 or we want 40% or something like that. So it'll be very interesting to see how this experiment plays out. It doesn't seem that hard to do you know you just put the standard in and you say it's a criterion like any of the other criteria that we use to make decisions about whether we're going to handle an IPO and it sends an important signal but i worry it's one of those window dressing things that may have unintended negative consequences if it leads to tokenism
2: that's interesting we've talked a lot about the system clearly we're still evolving there are things that need to be fixed and who knows how long it's going to take that being said more and more women are aiming for higher education and for high performance careers. So in that vein, how would you say, and I know you don't like to talk about how can women fix themselves, but how can women be more intentional Mm -hmm. in their own development and the way they are perceived at the workplace?
1: So yes, I'm not a big fix the women kind of person. So let me say a few things about this. One The system is designed to make people who don't fit the mold feel bad about themselves. So if you are a woman and you happen to be sort of outspoken then everyone will tell you you have sharp elbows and they'll give you training on how to be more likable I mean companies are still doing this they did it in the 80s when I first started working I got a lot of that training because apparently I'm not that likable you know and how to dress and how to do this and that and it makes you feel bad about yourself and the moment you feel bad about yourself you're going to underperform so then it becomes this reinforcing cycle because you underperform so then when it comes to promotion time turns out you underperformed so even on pure quote meritocratic Argument, you might not get the promotion. So, the first thing I would say to women is, You're awesome, don't fix yourself. I mean, we can all take feedback and improve, so I'm not saying like don't ever change, but I'm saying. When you get feedback, keep in mind that maybe it was designed by the system to make you feel bad about yourself and find a way to separate yourself from that feedback so it doesn't take that emotional toll that's going to get in the way of you actually just doing your best work, but recognize it for what it is. The second thing I would say is that this shouldn't just be for women. There are plenty of men who are going to the workforce right now, and we can also, this is very binary conversation, so we can also talk about non-binary people and trans people who don't fit the standard masculine mold either. They want to spend a lot of time with their kids when they have kids. They don't want to always wear just like the standard gray suit. They want to wear the pink tie They want or whatever it is. There's so many constraints on how masculinity is also presented in the workforce that I also think that we need to open up the possibilities of how everyone presents themselves. And I think that would also help be more inclusive of people who are non-binary or trans people. So I don't think this is just about women. I think we all have the opportunity to actualize in different ways. And your generation, as opposed to my generation, has the opportunity to just go to work and say, this is how I'm going to be. And I'm not going to actually work at an employer that doesn't want me to be the way I want to be. So I think it's something for everyone to think about how do you not feeling like you're in a straitjacket of what the different norms are in, in our society.
0: Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And as you said, can be adopted by everyone in this conversation, for sure. And I can imagine that this is in line with some of the work you do at GATE. So could you talk a little bit about your work at GATE and how the research is addressing some of the issues we've talked about?
1: So I founded the Institute for Gender and the Economy, or GATE is its acronym, three and a half years ago. And the goal really was to kind of change the conversation, that's our motto, using rigorous research to change the conversation on gender equality, and why? Because the conversation was stale. It was about fixing the women, or women are more risk averse, or all these things that from research we actually know are not true. So part of what we're trying to do is fund and translate scholarly, rigorous scholarly academic research that helps us understand where the truths are and where we're actually trading in myths. So a lot of our work is around myth-busting. So myth-busting around quotas. Quotas don't actually reduce quality, but everyone thinks it does. So we wrote a brief about that, and we summarized all of the academic research that actually shows that they're not problematic. About diversity training, the same thing. You think unconscious bias training is going to work. Here's all the ways that it could be actually hugely problematic. So what we're trying to do is shed a spotlight on those areas where we think the conversations are stale and getting in the way of progress and trying to show new models. You said you talked with Dilip. We partner with Behavioral Economics in Action at Rotman, Bear to talk about behavioral interventions and how behavioral interventions could actually change things. So we're really trying to partner with different groups to think about how we can change the conversation. And so the foundation is always the scholarly research because that's what tells us what the real insights are so we don't trade on things that are not true. But then we're also trying to engage. So why we have case competitions with students on LGBTQ inclusion or women in capital markets or designing the everyday man, because your generation are the ones who are gonna have to change things because my generation basically messed everything up. You know, I'm still working. I feel a responsibility, but I also feel like you have to learn these ideas and learn how to implement them. And so we do the research, but we also try to engage people in implementing the ideas.
2: So, you know, a lot of us are going to go back into the workforce in the next one year, two years. So through your research, at this point, what do you think are some of the most pressing issues that you're hoping to address in the next five years that, you know, people like us who are going to be in leadership roles eventually should be looking out for?
1: Yeah, well, there are so many. It's really pressing. We're in a lot of crises right now. And the thing that shocks me is how people don't feel as urgent as they should feel. So there was a report that came out yesterday that said climate change is leading to a massive increase in gender based violence because women are suffering the most from climate change issues. So not only are they having economic dislocation, but it's putting them in more vulnerable positions so that they're having to trade sex to be able to get food, for example— that they're going to be much more likely to be the ones who are displaced, who are then going to have to be immigrants to other countries. And these are economic issues, these are social issues, these are gender issues, and they're connected to climate change. And why we're not just massively focused on how we're going to address the issues of climate change. I mean, Australia basically just burned down. So when I think of the next five years, it is incredibly urgent that we get a lot of these issues right. And I personally believe that to talk about climate change, you need to also talk about gender and you need to talk about the economic issues and how they interact. So I feel feel like the work that we can do at gate is thinking about the gender implications of this and getting more women into these conversations. It's no accident that all the young activists like Greta, and There's uh, this is the problem, Greta is famous, but there's other women who are doing this work, and I feel really bad that I don't know their names, so this is like a lesson for me to get better at this. But there's a young woman in India who's... She's planting all the trees? She's doing a protest like Greta, but she hates being called the Greta of India because she has her own name, right? right? And it's young women, young girls around the world who are doing this. So I really feel like this conversation, I really hope that we find a way to integrate these conversations about climate change, corporate social responsibility, gender, and getting women into leadership as part of that conversation. Because the more women in power, the more likely we're going to have these inclusive conversations. But I'm personally pretty scared about the next five years. So I'm hoping that people start to feel more urgent than they're feeling.
0: Yeah, I I think we share that share that sense of urgency as well and that's why we're so happy that you're doing the work that you're doing through gate and i think it's got to be urgent but it's also you know we're going from these pre-conscious and unconscious biases to changing behavior which we know is difficult and right. so it's got to take that conscious and deliberate work and thank you for doing the things that you're doing to get the ball rolling on this and really opening up the different avenues of conversation through rigorous research which i think is hugely important so now we're gonna take a little left turn okay. and jump into some quick fire questions. Okay. These always seem to be the most difficult ones for some of our guests, so we're gonna jump off one each and I'll start us off. So if not
1: Sarah Kaplan, the professor, you would be a documentary filmmaker. That's that's <laughs> right, a good cool. one. what's a book you've most given as a gift? Well, embarrassingly, my own. I was going to say. The 360 (laughs) Corporation, it just came out in September. So I've been giving away a lot of copies. But if it weren't my own, the others that I've been giving out a lot are Soroya Chamali's Rage Becomes Her and Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, both of which are freaking amazing books. So I recommend those. And then, of course, I have to pitch my own. What is a bad piece of advice you often hear? Don't be so aggressive. Things are so urgent, we have to be aggressive, we have to go do this stuff, but I get that advice a lot.
2: LA, New York, Boston, Toronto, all cities you've lived in, which city would you say is winning in gender diversity right now? None.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I don't think we're there yet. I don't know if a city is winning. I mean, New York is probably just because it's such an incredibly diverse city with so many opportunities, but honestly, I think we have a long way to go.
0: What's your favorite way to kill 30 minutes?
1: So there's this fantastic podcast other than this fantastic (laughs) podcast. So my second favorite podcast is called Code Switch. It's by National Public Radio in the United States. And it's all about race issues. And it's fascinating and really well done. And so it's my second favorite after yours.
2: Your most valuable lesson that you've learned from your
1: consulting career? It's not enough to be super smart. You have to almost be like a counselor. You have to get people to want to change.
0: What's your secret talent?
1: I grew up on a farm in Oregon, so I know how to milk a goat. And no one would ever suspect that about me.
0: Wow, that's a great secret talent.
1: (laughs) What is the best investment you've ever made? Oh, my education. Yeah. Leaving McKinsey, going and getting a PhD at a sort of mid-career kind of stage was the best thing I ever did. But it was an investment.
0: I can imagine. What is the biggest trade-off you've ever made?
1: Well, related to that, it doesn't feel like a trade off to me. But when I left McKinsey, I was thirty five years old, making a lot of money, and everyone was like, "Why are you going back to school and giving up all that money and prestige?" And I'm like, "Because I want to become a professor." So for me, it wasn't a trade off, but everyone around me thought I was making a massive trade off.
2: What are you most excited about for the coming decade? I'm just filled with dread, so I don't know.
1: <laughs> I'm excited about Growing Gate. It's a startup. It's three years old. It's basically a toddler and I'm excited for it to get into grade one.
0: <laughs> and how can people get involved with that? How can they, you know, reach out to you? How can they contact you? And how could someone who's interested in this conversation and the things that you're doing get involved?
1: Well, the first thing to do is to go to our website, which is www.gendereconomy.org. There's a place to sign up for a newsletter. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on LinkedIn. We're about to launch an Instagram channel. I would say start there. We have a lot of resources there. If you're around in Toronto, come to our public events, which are all really exciting. And we'd love to have people involved. So yes, there's lots of ways, but maybe our website is the first door into that conversation.
0: And are there any upcoming events you might want to plug?
1: Well, yes. So we have a number of exciting events coming up in the spring, including Cleo Stiller, who's going to come and talk about modern masculinity. So in our spirit, we're not just an institute for women in business. We're really about gender and the economy. So that's going to be an exciting one. We have Stephanie Kelton coming in June. She's the author of the book that's kind of spawned all of the ideas of modern monetary theory that's really influencing politics in the United States. And then this fall, we're going to be having a conference called Gender Analytics, which is bringing business analytics with gender insights together. And that's on October 30th. And that's going to be really exciting.
0: Wonderful. Do you have any closing comments?
1: I just want to double down on this point about urgency. We really have to be making progress on these issues I think it's tempting in Canada to complacently pat ourselves on the back because we just have to look south of the border to my home country to feel better about things. But I don't think we should be complacently patting ourselves on the back. I think we got to be moving forward.
0: Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. This has been enlightening.
1: Thank you for being on the show, Sarah.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rotman Podcasts Faculty Insights Edition. Make sure to check back for a new episode every other Sunday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And follow us on EMA underscore Rotman on Instagram for updates on upcoming episodes and guests and behind-the-scenes shots. Also, we would love to hear from you. So if you'd like to give us feedback, please email us at ema at rotman.utoronto.ca. Thank you for listening.